Amen. Um, we are uh, really, we're kicking off in the last week, we're kicking off a couple of series. Um, Wednesdays, we are kicking off a series for Advent called The Songs of Advent. And uh, the idea behind the songs of, songs of Advent is we're taking those songs and and those prophetic songs that are from the story of Jesus' birth, and we're kind of working through them. If you haven't been a part of our Bible study on Wednesday night, it's a little bit more intensive. We just kind of focus in on, on a passage of Scripture and really kind of dig in line by line, word by word sometimes. And, and so that's what we're doing. We're taking each week the, the different songs uh, from the Advent story or the coming of Jesus Christ. And, and this last week we took the story and the song of Zechariah, um, and it was good. This next week's going to be better, so you can join us on Wednesday uh, for our Bible study at 6.30. But uh, this last week, as I was studying for that and reading through that song, which is just a beautiful, beautiful song, because it's Zechariah really prophesying at the birth of his son John the Baptist, and already he's pointing towards Jesus Christ. Right? So John the Baptist, from the day he was born... Until the day he dies, it says later on that, that even in his death, there is a pointing towards Jesus Christ and what he has done. And that his entire life, he's pointing towards Christ. And it's just really a beautiful thing. Anyways, as I was reading through that in preparation for it, there was a verse that really jumped out and kind of grabbed hold of my heart. It's probably a verse that I've read a ton of times, but I don't know if that happens to you like it happens to me. Where you can be reading a passage of scripture that maybe you've read a hundred times. And for whatever reason, this time that you read it, it leaps off the page and really grabs hold of you. And you're just like, whoa, I've never read that before. And that's what happened to me as I was reading this verse. It's, I, I believe it's because the word of God is alive and active and the Holy Spirit takes it and really kind of speaks it right to our souls, right where we're at. But as part of that, I was reading through Luke chapter 1. And I was reading these couple verses that I want to share with you today. In Luke chapter 1, verse 78 and 79, here's what it says. This is really a prophecy about Jesus Christ and his birth. Here's what it says. It says, because of the tender mercy of our God, which I love that phrase, the tender mercy of our God, the tender mercy of our God. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes the mercy and the grace stuff can get a little calloused. You know what I'm saying? You extend mercy, you extend grace, and you see how it's responded to, and it can get calloused, but not with our God. When he extends mercy, it is tender. And I love that. Right off the bat, that grabbed hold of me. Hey, the tender mercy of our God. So because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Jesus Christ, right at his birth, is compared to the sun rising. And I, of course, have, have many times thought of the resurrection in light of the sun rising in the morning. But never his birth. And yet that's what it's talking about here, that the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Jesus Christ is, as he comes, the sunrise. And, and I don't know if you've ever experienced the sunrise, just like in that video, which was not digitally enhanced in any way, where it just barely peaks over the horizon, and the sun is so overwhelming that, like, all of the darkness just flees. Do you know what I'm saying? 
and our little flashlights that just a moment ago seemed so powerful in the light of the sun just is like so dim and so insignificant because that's what happens with the light. And, and I experienced this really with that eclipse in 2017. I was originally thinking, I'll just stay in Springfield because it's supposed to be like a 90% eclipse or whatever. And so instead we went to the totality of it. And, there's, and, and for those who stayed here, they're like, well, I'll just look at it 90%. It's not even close to the same because even just a sliver of the sun just 10% of it or 5% of it is so bright that as you look at it, it just looks as if 95% of the sun is covered, that it's still so bright that it's overwhelming. It's that bright. And I love this picture of the sun just peeking over the horizon and that light shining on everything. Verse 79 says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. To give light to those who sit in darkness. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading that passage from Isaiah 50. Uh, somewhere around verse 11 or 12 or so. And somewhere around there, it's talking about those people who walk in darkness. And it's talking about as people walk in darkness, they have no light, that they put their trust in the Lord. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This idea of taking a step, and even though it's not very bright and it's obvious that you're walking in darkness, you take a step and you just keep walking, right? Like a beautiful picture. But then in Luke chapter 1, verse 78 and 79, it says to give light to those who sit in darkness, which there's a big difference to sitting in darkness and walking in darkness, because walking in darkness takes faith, right? It takes a step, and I can't see where it is, but sitting in darkness is when you have given up. And some people know exactly and literally what it's like to sit in darkness, because I've been there before. And there are moments of such depression and darkness in our lives that we want to do nothing but just literally sit in darkness. But what I love about this verse and how it laid hold of my heart this week is it says to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, but then to guide our feet into the path of peace. How can you guide somebody onto the path of peace when they're sitting on the ground? but that you first walk over and help them up off of the ground and then guide them onto the path of peace. I read this verse and I thought of those who might be sitting in darkness, that as the sun rises, this is my prayer for you this year, this Christmas, this Advent season, that as the sun peeks over the horizon and there's light that floods every dark spot, that as you may be sitting in darkness, that the tender mercy of God in Jesus Christ would walk over, grab your hand, help you up, and then walk you to the way of peace. I love this verse. And I think about Jesus coming in Bethlehem and that picture of him as a sunrise kind of rising over the horizon. And I think it's such a beautiful picture of what happens in the word of God where Jesus comes and as he comes, like the whole thing is filled with the light of Christ. 
right? It's so bright that it kind of everywhere you see Jesus, right? And even if I mention to you Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem, as I mentioned to you the town of Bethlehem, your mind goes to one spot, at least mine does. My mind goes to Jesus Christ being born and that picture of the nativity because that's exactly what we think of when we think of the town of Bethlehem. Why? Because the sun rose there, right? That's where Jesus came on the scene, where God invaded the world and the light shined out from there. So our mind goes there, but there were things that happened in Bethlehem long before that. And really incredible stories that a lot of times we just kind of skip over because we skip to that spot with Bethlehem. And so what we want to do as part of this series for Advent leading up to Christmas on Sunday mornings is we want to read the stories of those things that happened in Bethlehem before Jesus Christ ever came on the scene and see how they point to him and where his light shines in those moments. And we're calling it On the Way, On the Way to Bethlehem. So if you would, grab your Bibles this morning. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are some that are spread out throughout the seats this morning. Um, And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible that's in the seat would just be our gift to you. We would love for you to take that home with you. If you're on the front row, they're underneath. Uh, And so go ahead and grab that today. Once you have it, we're going to read the very first story, uh, the first time that we see Bethlehem in Scripture today. So it's all the way back in Genesis, the first book in the Bible, chapter 35. Okay, so Genesis 35. If you would grab your Bibles and turn in them to Genesis 35. If you have one of those church Bibles, it'll be on like page 29 or something. Somewhere around there, 29. So way at the beginning, okay? Genesis 35. And I do want to tell you as you're turning there that this story is kind of depressing. Okay? Chapter 35 of Genesis is a bummer of a chapter. Okay? It starts with a death. There's a death in the middle of it. And then there's another death at the end of it. So, like, if you're one of those people who's like, death comes in threes, chapter 35 is like, oh, I knew it. It's totally proved, okay? Genesis 35 is a story that's a bummer of a story, okay? This is where we're jumping into. So you're like, I decorated the tree, I got everything set up, and now we're going to go to church and get depressed. Genesis 35, just as a quick, quick setup of what's going on here in Genesis 35, um, this is a story of we're following Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is Jacob. And at this point, um, he is living in a place, or right before this, he was living in a place called Shechem, along with his 11 sons and one daughter and two wives. And as he's living in Shechem, um, some things happen, which we won't get into, but as a result, he has to leave. And God calls him and tells him that as you're leaving, I want you to go back to Bethel. Now, Bethel is not Bethlehem, but Bethel is the place where Jacob had the first time met with God. Okay? When he was fleeing his brother, he's headed out. He shows up at Bethel. It's like in Genesis 27, 28, somewhere in there. 28, Genesis 28. Um, he's fleeing there. He has a dream. God really shows himself. He meets God for the very first time and really puts his faith in God, and as part of that, um, God makes some promises to him. That all happens in Bethel. He sets up a pillar, and then he heads on his way, okay? So he ends up back in Shechem, and God says, okay, you're headed south. Here's where I want you to go. I want you to go to Bethel. So he heads to Bethel, 
While he's in Bethel, God reiterates the promises that he made to Jacob all those years before. Um, And so Jacob sets up another pillar, and he pours the drink offering over the top of it. While he's in Bethel, there's a couple of other things that happens. Number one, his mother's nurse, whose name is Deborah, is probably the woman who, more than any other, probably raised him, dies. He buries her underneath the oak tree. That's the first death. And so he buries her next to the oak tree or underneath the oak tree. While he's in Bethel, also his wife, Rachel, gets pregnant or we assume that she gets pregnant in Bethel. We're not entirely sure because it doesn't say that she gets pregnant while she's in Bethel. It doesn't give us any details. And we kind of know how that whole thing works, so we don't need a play-by-play. But at the same time, what's really interesting is that it's really silent on the fact that she gets pregnant. Because the first time she got pregnant, like back in Genesis chapter 30, uh, in Genesis chapter 30, it starts in verse 1 by saying, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Okay? So this is the beginning of chapter 30. And then later in chapter 30, in verse 23, it says, She conceived and she bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Now, I don't know if your Bible has a little note in it that says what Joseph means, but essentially it means may he add. So she names her first son, I want more. Right? So, like, if that doesn't give a kid a middle son complex, I don't know what would. It's like she says, your name is I want more than just you. So she says that right from the beginning. His name is Joseph, and that's what Joseph means. And so it's a big deal. She wants more hands. She wants more children. And so we don't have any idea of when it happens or where it happens. It probably happens in Bethel. But she gets pregnant. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 35, verse 16. Genesis 35, verse 16, here's what it says. Then they journeyed from Bethel. So Jacob and his wives and his 11 sons and one daughter and all of his flocks head off from Bethel. And we don't know why they head off from Bethel. It's kind of silent on that. His wife is apparently very pregnant at this point. There's no Roman census of the entire world, and so there's no reason for him to head off that we can tell. We do know that he heads south from Bethel and heads towards Hebron, which is where his dad is living. And by the end of the chapter, when he arrives, his dad actually dies. So that's the death at the end of the chapter. Isaac dies in Hebron and is buried at... Machpelah, which is the same cave that Abraham bought a hundred years before that in order to bury his wife, Sarah. So Abraham is buried there, and Sarah is buried there, and Isaac will soon be buried there. Is while he was in Bethel, maybe there will be buried there. And, and so maybe what happened is while he was in Bethel, maybe there was a messenger who came and said, your dad is on his deathbed, and you need to come. And so maybe that's why he heads off. Or maybe he's just being a man. I've got a nine-month pregnant wife. Let's set off on a journey. We don't know, but for some reason, he's in Bethel, and he heads off with his very pregnant wife. Verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel. 
And when they were still some distance, and again, I've got a little note in my Bible, and you might as well, but some distance here, it's at the bottom it says, or about two hours distance. It's kind of idiomatic for, hey, there's just a little ways to go. We're almost there, but we're not quite, right? There's still two hours on this little journey headed towards Bethel. So it's probably a mile or two outside of Bethlehem, Ephrath. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had a hard labor. We don't know what caused it to be a hard labor, but it was a hard labor. Verse 17, and when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. So this is like exactly what she's hoping for. I mean, except for the hard pregnancy thing. I mean, this is it, right? Like, this is the son that she named her last son after. This is the moment that she's been, this is like her highest hope is that she will have another son who is born. Remember, she said, give me children or I shall die. Well, here she is, and she's got another son. But it's difficult, and her midwife says to her, do not fear, for you have another son. And so this hard labor turns into the kind of labor that is a tragic labor. Verse 18. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Yamin, Benjamin. Um, this is kind of tragic, right? Like, here is, like, this great moment, this highest hope, and it turns just incredibly tragic in a moment, right? And so in the midst of this suffering and this pain and this, she's getting ready to die, she decides to name her second son, this highest hope for her, she decides to name him Ben-Oni, which means son of suffering, But then again, there's this beautiful moment that is so subtle because Jacob, who knows the Valdiver and then that follows him all of his life, just subtly changes his name. And so instead of calling him Ben-Oni, son of suffering, he calls him, just subtly changes a consonant and a vowel, and Ben-Oni becomes Ben-Yamin, son of strength, son of my right hand, son of strength. Just subtly, and just this beautiful act of, I don't know, tender mercy, I guess, changes his name subtly, and it goes from being son of suffering, which would have reminded him every time he was called Benoni, I am the cause of my mother's death, and instead changes his name to the son of strength, Ben Yamin beautiful thing that's so subtle as he does it. Verse 19. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb and it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb which is there to this day. So it's on the way to Bethlehem. Just outside of Bethlehem. She dies. 
And he buries her beside the road. And as he buries her beside the road, he sets up another pillar. This is the fourth pillar that Jacob has set up, set up in his life. And this fourth pillar he sets up over her tomb. And then it says that Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. We're not given any of his mourning. We're not given any of his grief. Like it doesn't talk at all about the process that he went through of pain, of losing this woman whom he really deeply loves, right? Like he, she, he was, she was his favored wife. But it doesn't talk about any of that. It just kind of moves on. And it says that he just kind of moves on and camps next to this tower of Eder. And, and we know that he loves the sons. And Benjamin and Joseph become his favorite of his sons because of the fact that they're from Rachel. So we know this is difficult, but it doesn't give us any kind of window through that grieving process for Jacob. It just kind of moves on. We do know that much later in his life, in fact, on his deathbed, that he looks back on this moment and he's filled with shame. Okay? Because in Genesis chapter 48, verse 7, he's on his deathbed. And Joseph is with him and he's talking to Joseph. And in verse 7, he refers back to this moment. And he says, as for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, and the words that are translated as to my sorrow are here, it is against me. Okay? It's kind of like this, to my shame, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So this is for him a moment of shame. And apparently what causes him shame and sorrow as he looks back on this moment was the fact that Rachel is buried along the side of the road. And the first kind of thing that pops up in my brain is why did he bury her along the side of the road? Because he's only like 12 miles away from Hebron. He's only 12 miles away from that cave of Machpelah, which, by the way, is again where Abraham is buried and Sarah is buried. This is where Isaac is buried and Rebekah is buried. It's actually where he buries his first wife, Leah. And actually, that same conversation in Genesis 48 where he asks, or where he mentions this, he asks Joseph, hey, make sure that I'm not left in Egypt. Make sure that I'm brought back and that I'm buried in that same cave of Machpelah. Bury me along with my ancestors, which means that of all of the patriarchs and all of the matriarchs, the only one who's not buried there is Rachel. She's buried beside the road just outside of Bethlehem. And Jacob builds a pile of rocks. He calls it a pillar, so maybe it's big, I don't know. But he builds this pillar, sets it over her grave, what? and continues on his way. Now he has one more son and one less wife. And his son, Benjamin, becomes the only son who is born in the promised land at the cost of one of his wife. His name is Benjamin, son of my strength. And it says at the end of this story that in verse uh, 20, 
and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Okay? Which means that that pillar is still there 500 years later when Genesis is written. Okay? And it actually says in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 2, when Saul is getting ready to be crowned king, Samuel's talking to him, and he says, hey, you need to go to, verse 2, he says, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin. So not only 500 years after he builds this pillar is it still there, but another 400 years after that, through the time of Judges, right up until Saul is about to be crowned king, this pillar is still sitting by the side of the road. So that's 900 years this pillar sits there. And just so you know, again, Jacob set up four pillars during his life. None of them besides this one remains. In fact, the one that he set up in Bethel the first time around, the second time around, it doesn't even mention it being there. So sometime between the first time he was there and the second time he was there, somebody's walking along and says, hey, that's a great stone when I was a kid, and say that and use it for something. Or somebody walks up and does what I did when I was a kid and says, hey, there's a stone. Kick it over just to be dumb, right? Like that's what people do. And yet, for 900 years, this pillar remains. In fact, there's a chance that it even remains another 400 years after that. Because in Jeremiah chapter 31, there's this picture of the people who are being deported, the Jewish people, and as they're walking along the road being carried off uh, into exile by, by the Babylonians, it's like they look to the side of the road and they see that same pillar standing there. And I actually think, and this is just me, but I think by this time the pillar of stones had started to fall over a little bit. And so the pillar of stones that was over Rachel's tomb was just kind of curved. That's in my mind. Jeremiah sees this and he uses it as a prophecy. Jeremiah 31 verse 15. Speaking of the Jewish people as they're carried off into exile, walking along this road, he says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So it's possible that as many as 1,300 years after he builds this pillar, it is still by the side of the road. There is still today a traditional site of Rachel's tomb. Which is one of the probably top three revered sites in the Jewish faith. Number one, of course, is the Temple Mount. Number two is the Cave of the Patriarchs tomb of the patriarchs, which is where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah are all buried. But then the third site is Rachel's tomb. 
You can still to this day go there, but it's actually probably one of the most contested sites right up there with those other two, one of the most contested sites in Israel. And so it's surrounded at this point by concrete bunkers. And as recent as two decades ago, there have been gun battles, massive gun battles in 2000 and 2001. At, at, at Rachel's tomb, there was this massive siege by those who were uh, uh, proclaiming Islam, attacking this place. And there were, for 41 days, Jews, these people who had come to visit, actually had to hunker down inside as there was it was under siege I mean it is still to this day contested and that's just the traditional location of Rachel's tomb we're not even sure that's the right place but up until almost at least 900 years maybe as much as 1300 years this pillar of stones sat beside the road how does that happen That while the Israelites are in Egypt and others have the run of the place, nobody kicks over the pile of stones. And as armies go through during the time of Judges or even during the time of Joshua, nobody kicks over the pile of stones. When the Babylonians come through, nobody says, hey, let's kick over that pile of stones. No teenager ever comes along and kicks over the pile of stones. I did that just for fun when I was a teenager. Hey, somebody set up some stones. I'm going to kick them over. Nobody does that. The wind doesn't blow them over. How does that happen? But that God himself preserved them. He said, I'm going to preserve this. And he holds it in place for as much as 1,300 years along the side of the road coming up on Bethlehem. Why? So that it could be used as a prophecy by Jeremiah. And boy, I I don't know if you've heard that prophecy before, but it shows up again in Matthew. It shows up there when Herod kills the babies, the baby boys in Bethlehem. And Matthew says, ah, this is pointing to that same thing. Rachel is still weeping and mourning and refusing to be comforted. And so we read that and we're like, okay, so he held this pile of stones in order for a prophecy to be made. Well, kind of. I believe he held it in place not for a prophecy to be made, but for the promise that comes after the prophecy. See, because we always read the first part of that, but we never read the second part of that. We read Jeremiah 31 verse 15, but we don't read 16 and 17, which is very clearly tied together with it. Because in verse 15, it says Rachel refuses to be comforted. And then in verse 16, there is a promise that regardless of whether she refuses to be comforted, God is going to comfort. Here's what it says. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will come back to their own country. There is hope for your future. So as they're walking along the road and they see this pile of stones on the side, And they say, ah, Rachel is weeping and mourning. There is a promise in that pile of stones that God is going to bring them back. And when Matthew then uses this in in the birth narrative, when Herod comes through and kills all those babies in Bethlehem, inherent in that prophecy is also, don't worry. 
Because the sun's about to rise. There's a prophecy here, but there's also a promise here. And this is the story of Rachel. See, for the Jewish people, the reason why this is such a revered sight is because when they look at Rachel, they see a woman displaced. They see a woman who suffered. They see a woman who they tried to comfort but would not be comforted. And she sees her son, Ben-Oni. And she's thinking of her suffering. She's thinking of the end. And she thinks, what should I name him? Oh, he is the son of my suffering. When we were headed up to Wisconsin for Thanksgiving, it's about an eight-hour trip when I drive. It's about a ten-and-a-half-hour trip when Liz drives. I can say that because she's not here. And I left lots of space for that to be edited out. Um, so it's an eight-hour trip, which is really not that bad. And I love driving. If I have an audio book, it goes by so quickly. And so I'm a fan of driving through the night, especially when you have kids, because you start early, early, early in the morning, and then they don't have to sit through that long wait. Because eight hours to me is it's like eight eternities for the children. You know, their lives are so short, everything expands, I guess. I don't know. And so we always kind of did that, and they would always, like, wake up just as the sun is rising, and we're almost there. We thought our kids are getting older this time, and so what we should do is we should just give it a go. Let's see how it works. So instead of going all the way through the night, we waited until the morning. We took it easy, had a nice morning, and then we jumped in the car and headed off, and how's this going to go? And we hit Lebanon, <laughs> 45 minutes in, and Asher says to me, Daddy, are we in Wisconsin yet? I said, oh, buddy. Oh, buddy, we still got to go through the Valley of Suffering, Illinois, <laughs> you know, and then we'll get to the Promised Land. And I thought, oh, okay, so maybe not quite old enough. But again, they were so used to just jumping in the car and the, the, the journey being so short that they would wake up when the sun's rising and they would be there. And so, are we there yet, you know? No, honey, we're not there yet. For Rachel, on the side of the road, I read that and I think of somebody who's thinking of the end, right? Like Ben Oni. She's not thinking of what is this person going to go through for the rest of his life. She's thinking of her ending. And boy, in a way, yeah, it's an ending. But oh, honey, we're not there yet. Because this is Genesis. This is page 29 of 1074. Like, we got a long ways to go here. We're not there yet. We're still on the way. But she sees the ending. Yet Jacob sees this as. This is just the beginning. So he takes this Ben-Oni and turns it into Ben-Yamin. 
goes from a son of suffering to a son of strength. And I read of Rachel on the side of the road, and I think of that suffering, but I also think of that same promise in Luke chapter 1, verse 78 and 79, which talks about the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. When I read of Rachel on the side of the road in this pile of stones that is like supernaturally held in place for almost a millennium at least, I think of a God who his light floods. And for those who are sitting in darkness, stopping, no longer taking a step forward, giving up, that the picture of what Jesus Christ came to do is to say, here is the light and to come and take them off the side of the road and to guide their path into the way of peace. And for some of us, and some of us it's not that at all, like we're just like, I love Christmas. But for some of us, anybody who's experienced loss, boy, Christmas, which used to be such a great thing and a celebration and we had loved ones and we remember those times, but that greatest, highest moment can also be for us like a sense of loss and a sense of, of difficulty because that great moment is also a place of pain because we remember the cost. There was a loved one who is lost. And so even at Christmas, it can be that for us. And there's a tendency to sit down in the midst of that darkness and yet Jesus Christ came in order to wash that away. And by his tender mercy to speak to it and take that monument of suffering, that moment of suffering, and to speak to it and turn it into a monument and a moment of strength. And that is the story of Rachel. A pile of stones on the side of the road just outside of Bethlehem. We're not there yet. But the Lord declares, there is hope for your future today. And if you forget that, and if that's a struggle for you, remember a lonely pile of stones on the side of the road held together for a millennium as a symbol of the fact that God's not done with you yet. And he wants to take that place of suffering and turn it into a place of strength for you. But you got to hear the tender mercy of our God. you got to let that light flood you, wash away the darkness, and he will walk over to you, grab your hand and say, get up off the ground. I am guiding you to the path of peace. That 
is what Christmas is about. That is what Bethlehem is about. And that's what the story of a pile of rocks on the side of the road, how that speaks to babies being murdered in a little town called Bethlehem. There is hope, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's what he'll do for you. Would you stand with me today? Here's how I want to end. Because there's a wide range of us here, and man, there's, we come from all different places, and, and some of us, man, we're just cruising along the way, and it's like everything's going smooth, and some of us, man, there's just this, there's just this sitting in darkness, and today what God wants to do in your life is he wants that sun to just peek over the horizon, right? You just need a little bit of it today, and you need to let that shine right into your heart. And wash away all that darkness. And yes, it may be the ending. And maybe it's not the death of a loved one. Maybe it's the death of a dream. Or the death of something in your life. And you're just still sitting by the side of the road. And God is speaking to you and saying, Today, hear this message. This is why Jesus Christ came. To guide you into the path of peace. To take that place of suffering in your life. And make it into the place of strength by his tender mercy to speak to you and call you out of darkness. And boy, I just hope you hear that today because he gives life. He gives love. He is light to the darkness. And today I want to just respond by doing that. Before we do anything else, I just want to respond to him today and say thank you for being light to my darkness. I literally sat in darkness, in just a dark place in my life. And Jesus Christ reached into that and pulled me out. And he wants to do the same thing for every single one of us today. And maybe that's exactly what he needs to do this Christmas. Be reminded of that pile of rocks. The only of his pillars that lasted it all was the pillar that was the promise of a hope for your future. Hear it today. That is Jesus Christ in your life. Let us respond to him, and then I'm going to have a time of prayer. And so before we do anything else, let's give him glory and honor and praise for that today. Hallelujah.